the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And as you no doubt know by now, this is a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, whatever um, is on your heart or mind, what we believe as Christians or why we believe it. Maybe you're going through something and want to know what the Bible would say to do about it. We'll do the very best that we can to answer those questions. Here's our phone numbers, 340 340- 9585. That's 340 9585. You can also call toll free at 877 630 KSLR. That's 630 5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also send your questions in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is by using the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now button on the face of the phone, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, because it's Wednesday, we've got a couple things to talk about real quickly, and then we'll get right to questions. Tonight, uh, we start Second Samuel. We just finished First Samuel, and since it's really only one book, I know it's separated into two books in our Bibles, but in the Hebrew Bible, these were just one books, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and First and Second Samuel. Uh, We're going right through with the life of David, and tonight is an important study because it's all about our ugly flesh. If you're struggling with your flesh, and who isn't, this is a good study to listen to. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, we're going to do, I think, the first 16 verses in that uh, chapter. It's also... um, because it's Wednesday, date day edition is tomorrow on Thursday. Paula will be live in the studio uh, with me in the for the program, and we'd love to have your live calls and questions, ladies. We sort of give priority to your questions and calls. So if you have anything on your heart, you can either wait till tomorrow call. You can email the question in. We'll be happy to do that. So let me get right to some questions that have been sent. We have some pretty good ones. Here's the first one. It's from our email inbox. It's from Phyllis. And she wants to know, what was Jesus writing on the ground when he was addressing the Pharisees about the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11? So listen, nobody knows what he was writing because we're not told what he was writing. Uh, We can make some pretty educated guesses based on what happened. Now, here's the scenario for those of you who are listening today. Uh, Jesus um, was being tested by the religious leaders. This was a setup, by the way. The woman that was caught in the act of adultery was set up. That would have been, that would have had to have been a man who she was caught in the very act with, uh, but he too was uh, part of the plot to trap Jesus. And of course, he gets away scot-free, and the woman is the one who gets called before the authorities. And, and um, teacher, what do you say that we should do? The law says that we should stone her. What do you say? And Jesus simply said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, that's all too often 
wrongly used to justify not having any consequences to our sin. Uh, when, when I've uh, told somebody, what you're doing is wrong. Well, if you have no sin, then you can tell me I'm wrong, I've been told. Well, that's not what this is about at all. Um, clearly, the woman was in the wrong. So too was the man that she would have been caught with. But what Jesus is talking about is the sin in the hearts of those Pharisees and Sadducees who were trying to trap him. He knew everything. They couldn't pull anything over on him. So when Jesus said that, he leaned down and he began with his finger to write in the sand or in the dirt. Again, we don't know what he wrote, but we know this. We know that from the oldest to the youngest, they began to leave one by one. Now, I think it's a pretty safe assumption, Phyllis, to say that Jesus was pointing out some sin in each of their lives, and he started with the eldest among them. I can just see the scene now, you know, everybody's ready, stoner, 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 and Jesus spins down and he writes somebody's name, uh, Eli, Moishi, uh, and then he, he maybe writes something that they're guilty of. Oh, I think I have to go, they would think, and, and they would get away because of the embarrassment. The idea here is that Jesus perhaps was pinpointing their unworthiness to judge anybody, pointing out their hidden sins. Because this woman was no doubt a prostitute. Uh, She would have been very familiar with a lot of the men in the town. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus was writing their name and the date that they were with this same woman and could have been stoned. We don't know for sure, but I think that's pretty uh, simple explanation. By the way, fellas, when I get this question, I always like to encourage people, especially if you've got a a, um, a Bible study computer program, um, go through your concordance and, and, and put finger of God in there and do a search. It's a wonderful, wonderful Bible study when just the finger of God And this was one the finger of God was writing in the sand. So again, we don't know what he was writing specifically. We're not told. All we know is that the people that were accusing this woman were being pointed out as sinners themselves in some way that Jesus, of course, knew about. So Phyllis, thank you for the question. I hope that helps very, very much. 340-9585. Here is a question from Anna. Uh, from our email inbox. Uh, Pastor Ron, why is the woman in chapter 1 of Song of Songs concerned for her dark appearance or complexion? Great, great question. And for the answer, Ani, you have to understand a little bit about the culture and the history. Um, what she's saying to, to Solomon, now here's the, 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 what we have to understand. This is a, a woman who was uh, a field worker. Uh, her brothers were not treating her fairly. She thought of herself as just a sort of a weed. Um, um, I'm just a, a rose of Sharon. That sounds great to us, but it's just a common weed. No, you're, you're the best of the best, Solomon would say to her. Now, King Solomon would have been away from his uh, palace, um, maybe inspecting some of his fields. The way that, that people made money is they would farm um, uh, property that they leased from the king. Uh, so the king would get... Um, uh, rental, what we would call rent, and then he would get a portion of the the proceeds from the crops, so he would be out just sort of checking, and he runs into this girl. And he sees her, and frankly, she takes his breath away. She is stunning. He's in love. Now, he's the king. He knows he can't stay there. It's also interesting, Anna, that he was in disguise when he would go out on these trips, he would get away from being recognized as king. And in this particular case, when he saw this girl and she took his breath away, he just looked right at her and said, you know, you're, you're the most beautiful, I'm paraphrasing, you're the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And then she says, no, I, I'm just a weed. I'm not like the other girls who are beautiful. My skin is dark. Now, The picture we get of her physically, Anna, is that she was lean, and because she worked, she was what we would call fit. But the standard of beauty in the ancient world, in much of the ancient world, certainly at the time that Solomon lived, was plumpness and whiteness. Now remember, these were all Middle Eastern people, 
and and the really privileged among them would, would actually take skin bleaching treatments and instead of being lean and fit what we now consider beautiful in this day and age that we live in um, if the woman was plump she would be a suitable wife candidate she would be somebody that could bear children and that was the picture of beauty so this woman is saying no all those other girls are beautiful I'm not like them but my skin is dark I've been darkened by the sun I work in the fields and Solomon looked at her and he said all oh, beautiful you are my darling there's no flaw in you now Anna the reason that's important is because this is an allegory. I mean, it, it's a real historical story. This is a poem that tells the story about the one woman that Solomon, King Solomon, really loved. But it's also a picture of Jesus. This is Jesus looking at us. And whether he's looking at you, Anna, or looking at me, he's saying, you're perfect for me. All beautiful you are, my darling. There's no flaw in you. And he constantly constantly reinforces how beautiful she is to him. And Jesus wants us to understand that we're beautiful to him. We don't have to do things. We don't have to change things. We're beautiful as long as we come to him. So Anna, that's the reason that she was concerned for a dark appearance. It wasn't a, a racial thing or um, a, a color thing at all. It was nothing more than her own insecurities. So thank you for asking, on. I appreciate it. And uh, if you've got the time, go to calvaryessay.com. Uh, I've done a couple of complete teachings on the Song of Solomon, and that's why I recommend it so often to people who really don't understand their value to God, people that don't understand their beauty, they don't understand how much God loves them. If you'll read just the parts in your Bible that, that are headed with the word lover, that's Jesus speaking to you. It's Solomon speaking to the girl that took his breath away. But it's also Jesus speaking to you and to me. Thank you, Juan. I appreciate the question. Let's go to line one. Talk with Dave from San Antonio. Dave, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Good afternoon. I, uh, Thank you. Have a quest- I have a question which you've probably never been asked before. Maybe. I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking probably not. Okay. And it has, it has absolutely no theological import whatsoever. Uh, okay. I was thinking about, about Adam. And we were told in the scripture, uh, for Adam and Eve, for that matter. And and I began to wonder about how they communicated, what their language might have been. And then I got to thinking about the fact that Adam was called upon to name the animals. And we have names of animals today, and those names will change from language to language. The Chinese will not call a giraffe what we call a giraffe. And uh, I, I'm just curious whether you have any uh, thoughts about the, uh, the, for lack of a better term, the language in which they communicated or, 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 uh, or whether any of the, uh, whether we have any trickle down of, of any of the animals' names, that kind of thing. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like I said, it's, it's, it's a totally unimportant question, but it's just one of those, well, you know. I like the question, Dave, because it shows that you're thinking. Uh, the answer it's not not a satisfying answer because we we don't know. You know, if you ask a Jew what language Adam and Eve spoke in the garden, they would take Hebrew. But remember, there were no yeah, Jews uh, until Abraham. Right. So that's right. not the case. Uh, Abraham would have spoken the common Palestinian language at the time of the day, uh, a form of Aramaic. But 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 that, that's that's beside the point. For Adam and Eve, we have no idea. We have no idea. We'll find out when we get to heaven, but we have no idea whatsoever uh, what language they spoke or how they communicated. I mean, we know that they spoke to one another, uh, but we don't know what kind of language or what kind of words. Now, the one thing I can say is that I'm confident personally, and again, you're right, names change, language changes uh, over time, but I'm confident that, that when Adam, remember, he's our federal head, when he gave them the names and he called a giraffe a giraffe, um, whatever language it is, that's been preserved uh, throughout time. And and I'm willing to, um, let me just say this, I think personally that those um, uh, names for the, for the animals have been passed down um, from generation to generation, from Adam's time to ours. So, uh, I, 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 yeah, I think that, you know, what's more important to me, and this is, does have theological import, Dave, is that 
in asking Adam to name the animals, he was creating in Adam a desire that Adam didn't even know he had. This always blows my mind to think about this because Adam was born into a perfect world. He would be in awe of the creation. He'd be in awe of the animals that he saw. And and when God said it's not good for man to be alone and he put Adam in a deep sleep, um, um, that desire for a mate came as the animals would come by Adam, two by two, a male and a female. And it wouldn't take long for Adam, as brilliant as he had to be in his unfallen state, it wouldn't have taken him too long to say, you know, everybody has somebody but me. But me, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, Mr. And, and, and so yeah. Adam woke up that day with no no knowledge at all that he had a need that wasn't being fulfilled. He went to sleep that night when God put him in deep sleep, knowing that there was something missing from his life. Imagine his response when he woke up the next morning and saw Eve. Now, the Bible says oh, he yeah. said, this is, bone of, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Uh, I think he said probably something before that. I think he said, wow. But, wow. Uh-huh. But, but it was just God creating a desire in Adam for something that God knew he needed. So that's the best exactly. I can do. Yeah. Well, that's good. I, I, you know, it was a big, you know, that's a pretty big task. I think, you know, I, I, I'm just thinking he's sitting there saying, well, let's call this a platypus. And then let's call this a hyena. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know I, I, my favorite, my God, favorite can animal, we David. Stop now? Can we, yeah, can we yeah. stop today? Can we pick this up tomorrow? <laughs> yeah. My, my favorite animal, animal is the hippopotamus. I like to think what Adam thought when he saw the first hippo. They, <laughs> yeah. they just fascinate me. So just one of those yeah. things. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate the call. Take care. God bless. Bye-bye. Uh, you too. 340-9585. Uh, I love it. Now, see, what, what Dave doesn't understand, these unimportant questions in terms of theological doctrine, um, those are the kind of questions that show that the Holy Spirit is really working uh, in and on you as you're reading the Bible. The, the, God loves curiosity. And um, those are the kind of questions that really... Put our we, we put ourselves in the garden, almost like we're spectators watching this whole thing uh, unfold. And if, if we will, all of us get in the habit of putting ourselves right in the middle of the story that we're studying in the Bible, uh, it'll become more alive to us. And, and I've been doing that for uh, almost the whole time I've been saved since I first opened the Bible after being saved for six months. Uh, I wanted to be in the story. It was like I could snoop around and and try to find answers. That kind of curiosity um, is really, really a good thing. So thank you, Dave. Reggie wrote in and he said, uh, "Wait a minute, we got to let me take a phone call first. I think uh, let's go to Javier calling from San Antonio. Javier, thanks for calling. You're on the air." Javier, are you there? Hi, Javier. You're on the air. Hey, God bless you. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't realize. Um, Thank you. I am uh, questioning about going to heaven after death. When all references uh-huh. on Scripture said that people go to the grave and they're like in a sleep mode. Now, there's six verses in Psalm 37 that says that we will inherit the earth and, and then dwell in it eternally. Like, for instance, even Jesus in Matthew 5 and, and Luke 5 and the Beatitudes said that the meat will inherit the earth. Mm-hmm. So I would like to uh, see your viewpoint on that, and I'll listen on the radio. Okay, Javier, thank you very, very much. Um, when, when Jesus said the meat will inherit the earth, uh, what he's talking about is we're going to rule and reign with him in his kingdom here on earth, the, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. So there's nothing more to it than that. It doesn't mean that we're going to be placed into the earth. Uh, we also have to understand that, that the, the writing styles in the ancient world were different. Jews, for example, uh, had a concept of afterlife, but it wasn't anywhere near as developed as our understanding uh, about afterlife. Um, they had no concept of what being saved meant. They, they believed that being Jewish entitled them to be with, with God in heaven, wherever heaven was or whatever. But they didn't really have an image of it uh, the way we do because, of course, they didn't have the, the, the New Testament or the full and complete revelation of Jesus Christ. So that the meek will inherit the earth is simply 
uh, one of the Beatitudes that says, uh, when you humble yourself, God will exalt you. The way to win is to lose. Let go of everything here in this world and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll inherit everything and more. Um, Paul writes about that in Ephesians, that, that we're his inheritance. We're his inheritance, but our inheritance is, is not only Jesus, but everything heaven has. So that's the idea about heaven. Now, relative to sleep, uh, in the ancient world, sleep was a euphemism for dying. Um, Jesus, when uh, Lazarus was, uh, when word came to Lazarus that, or to Jesus that Lazarus was sick and he waited four days uh, until he got word that uh, Lazarus was dead. You remember his disciples said, well, no, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. And and Jesus saw that they didn't understand. So Jesus said plainly, we're told in John's gospel, that he, Lazarus is dead. And that's when he went and he waited on purpose so that he could raise him from the dead, do this outstanding miracle that, that would uh, validate really everything that he's been saying about himself. So when you see sleep used as a as a euphemism, for dying, it doesn't mean that they went to soul sleep or or that they just went into the middle of the earth. It means that they were dead, and and uh, in some cases Jesus raised him from the dead. Paul raised Eutychus from the dead, but for the most part, it just means that they died. Um, there's no possibility of soul sleep today. You will be with me in paradise, Jesus said to the thief on the cross. Uh, Paul says to the church at Corinth that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So there's no soul sleep or there's no um, indication at all that, that uh, we're, we're going to die and then we're not going to wake up until Jesus comes for us uh, to establish his kingdom. It's not that at all. Um, we have the promise, Javier, of life everlasting that begins the moment we're born, the first breath that we take. We're going to live somewhere forever. And if we're a believer, then that place that we're going to live forever is in the presence of God. We call that heaven. If we're an unbeliever, uh, we will be in a place called, um, we call it hell or, or the abyss uh, or the grave. And, and it's a place of torment. Luke chapter 16 gives you a pretty clear picture, uh, Javier, of of uh, those two compartments. Now, one other thing, the compartment called paradise now has been emptied. Jesus went to set the captives free. He led them in his train to heaven after his resurrection. But that place uh, in the center there somewhere, the abyss uh, is still full. That's where the unrighteous dead go uh, and they are tormented until uh, after the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Then uh, Hades will be emptied and they will all stand before uh, the Lord at the great white throne judgment and then be cast forever and ever into the lake of fire. So that's what is meant by sleep uh, when we're talking about uh, that relative to heaven and hell. No second chances to be sure. Thank you, Javier. Uh, here's a question from Reggie. He said, why do you think Jesus said to begin our prayers with our Father which art in heaven? Reggie, it's a really, really important answer. Um, because one, you, you've got to be sure that you're in the family. If we're going to talk to him, we've got to have a relationship with him. Jesus, of course, is the way to have that relationship. So our Father, um, you've you got to have a relationship um, through adoption. If you're an unbeliever and, and you get saved, you've been adopted by God. We've been given a spirit of adoption, uh, of sonship. We can cry out, Abba, Father. So it's it's just a, a, a reminder that he has to be um, our father. We've, we've got to own him, and, and, and he owns us, of course. Um, which are in heaven, I think, is important. It's, it's important from so many levels. Um, in the Old Testament, Psalm 29, um, the Lord makes a lot of uh, being in heaven. Uh, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord, is, the Lord is enthroned as king forever. The flood is a, a symbol of judgment, Psalm 29. And, and when uh, God sits over that throne, he's in heaven. Um, he's the one who controls judgment. If we know him, if he's our father, then we have the assurance that we'll never be judged. Um, that he's in heaven gives him a vantage point. Remember, Psalm 29 is a poem. If you, if you are in heaven and, and you're 
all-seeing and all-knowing and all-powerful, um, then, then he maps out our steps and he knows what he has planned for us. So he can see the end from the beginning and, and that way we know we can trust him with our future. So Reggie, that's why he said it. When you pray, say, Our Father. And if you can't say Our Father, there's only one prayer. And, and this isn't the Catholic Our Father. But when there's, uh, when, when you begin your prayer, there's only one prayer that God can hear from somebody who's, uh, who's unable to say Our Father. And that's the prayer that says, help, save, I'm a, I'm a sinner, save me. And then when we respond to that, then we become his child. He becomes our father. So it's, it's a really important connection because no man can see God. No man can communicate with God. He is a consuming fire of holiness. At the same time, Reggie, Jesus made a way that we could have access with his Father in heaven. So it's a model for prayer. It's not something that we're just supposed to repeat. It's an outline, and if you pray that outline, believe me, the Holy Spirit will fill in the details. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the Wednesday edition of the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We will be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program, 340-9585. Let's go to Jonestown, Jonestown, Texas, and talk with Dale on line one. Dale, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron, I just felt uh, compelled to call in and share a revelation I had recently as a follow-up to the caller uh, on the woman taken in adultery. And, okay. uh, you know, I'd always struggled with, you know, under the law, rightly, she would have been stoned. Um, but, you know, I struggled with that um, over the years. And then uh, recently I was reading through the Old Testament and came across Hosea uh, 4.14, and I may have to pay, paraphrase here because I'm driving, but the Lord says, I will not punish your daughters for playing the harlot or your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go off with the harlots and sacrifice with the prostitutes. And, you know, that just leapt off the page at me as a condemnation of, you know, the Pharisees and the hypocrisy and, um, you know, a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in not executing the punishment against her. Yep, yep. I, I agree completely. You know, when when uh, Jesus looked at those men, and, and that's that's why I have guessed in the past when I've taught this passage that Jesus might have been writing down the times that they were with this harlot, um, this prostitute, and and would would you know when they'd find themselves busted and now suddenly I'm guilty, uh, I could be stoned. And, and the law makes no distinction between men and women. If you're caught in the act of adultery, you're going to be stoned. So um, I, I agree completely with you. Uh, uh, the, the hypocrisy of the religious leaders then and sadly, the, the hypocrisy of many of the religious leaders now uh, is uh, overwhelming. And, and um, God knows the truth and he's not going to let us get away with stuff. So you're absolutely right. And I'd also like to take the opportunity to just give testament to something, you know, you've said. I used to be one of those red-letter Christians, um, oh. and then expanded to the New Testament. And then, uh, you know, I always thought the Old Testament was completely irrelevant to me, and what a fool I was, because <laughs> I so much more understand the New Testament, and my God, and the Lord Jesus now, and I don't know how I ever got by on just the red letters. Yep. Bless your heart. That's that's real humility, and when we are humble, God uh, will teach us. And and you have a teachable heart, a teachable spirit, Dale. So thank you very much for that. Thanks a lot. Bye. Three four zero. Okay. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question from Dwayne, that was uh, sent to us via email. Uh, by the way, let me just say for for Dale too. 
Um, that's the kind of humility that that will result in us maturing in our faith. Uh, too often, especially with young men and women, uh, we think we know too much. Um, we 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 get so dogmatic. Uh, there are things that we need to be dogmatic about, but to uh, to have a focus that says um, only the red letters matter, only Jesus matters. I don't have to listen to what men wrote. It shows it shows an ign- ignorance of what the Bible is and and what it's all about. So um, that kind of humility results in God being able to. I mean, here's a, a man who is able to call and say, "God's given me a revelation." And and that, that um, explanation comes from an Old Testament book they never would have read before. That pleases the Lord a lot. So, Dale, I wanted to say that to you. Here's a question from Dwayne. He wanted to know. Um, well, I, we we go to phone calls first, so we just had somebody call. Let's go to Debbie on line one, calling from San Antonio. Debbie, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Hi, Debbie. I have a question for you um, regarding um, salvation and um, where Christ says those who in, who do sexual immorality acts will not inherit the uh, the, the kingdom of heaven. Okay, and, and I'm, this is gay marriages. Okay. Um, one of them once told me that he felt God was a hypocrite because, you know, he was saved. But then now that, you know, we're telling him that he's not going to inherit the kingdom of God because of his sexual immoralities, then he's not saved. How can, you know, how can that not be? And I guess I didn't know how to explain to him the difference. So when I see him next, I want to be able to answer that. Can you help me? I can help you, Debbie. Thank you for calling. I appreciate it very, very much. Uh, The answer to the question is that um, when Galatians and 1 Corinthians, Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, say that people who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, uh, he's describing a lifestyle. He's not describing an occasional mess up. He's not uh, describing, oh, I sinned and my heart is broken. I don't want to do that anymore. What he's describing is people who live like that, oblivious to the Word of God, oblivious to the heart of God, and yet claim to be Christian. You know, Debbie, there's a lot of people who lay claim to heaven with their mouths, with their lips, but their lives say just the opposite. In fact, Jesus, when he was talking to those who were plotting his murder, uh, he, he said, your father is the devil, and he's the author of lies. Lying is his native tongue. Um, well, well, there's a lot of people who just lie. And um, when anybody says something like, well, I think God's a hypocrite, they don't know him. And so we don't take those things, and we don't have to defend God's position on something. Jesus said that many will say to him on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, didn't I know you, or didn't I prophesy, or didn't I cast out demons? And Jesus will say, depart from me, you sinner, I, I, for I never knew you. So it doesn't matter what somebody says. What matters is the kind of life they live before God. And it's as old as time, people trying to conform God to their image instead of us being conformed into his image. So what I would say to this person is that if you think the way you're living is okay, then you don't know God at all. And you're not saved. It's just that simple. And then tell him, but you know what? Jesus would change his mind about you right now if you asked him to forgive you. But that requires repentance. But the man or the woman who is intent on staying in their sin and trying to blame God for it, well, they're the ones who don't know him at all. Now, Debbie, there's something else I want to point out when I get questions like this all the time that the same thing is true of the man or the woman who is continually angry and sinning in that anger, the man or the woman who refuses to forgive others, the man or the woman who drinks too much, the man or the woman who does drugs, um, the man who looks at a computer screen filled with pornography. 
um, people who live like that don't know God. If you do those things and the Holy Spirit lives in you, you're going to be convicted of those things and there won't be any peace in your life. So the difference here is in describing the man and the woman who is committed to their sin instead of being committed to Jesus. And there's just no other way uh, to explain that. It doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation if you do something. It just means if you really know Jesus, then your heart will be for repentance. And you'll want to please God instead of pleasing self or satisfying your lust. So the professing gay Christian who says, well, I'm entitled to be loved and to love. I'm entitled to be happy. God wants me to be happy. Uh, That's a man or woman who does not know God at all. Because what I say to the church here all the time, Debbie, is God doesn't care about us being happy. He wants us to be obedient. And when we are obedient, then we have great joy. Okay, I hope that answers your question. 340-9585. I also like to remind people in this audience, we need to understand with compassion the plight of men and women who have same-sex attraction. They meet somebody like me and they're told to be saved, to go to heaven. You have to give up this lifestyle. From their perspective, they're being condemned to a life of loneliness, a life without physical satisfaction from sex. I've said this many times on the program. I would absolutely hate to have to choose Jesus over Paula. Now, obviously, I don't because a man and a woman is the way God intended it. But if 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 I had to choose, I'd choose Jesus. And we've had a lot of same-sex attracted people in our church over the years. And I, when I say a lot, I mean many, 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 many who got to that place, hearing the Word of God taught, where they had to realize that they had to make a choice. Heaven or hell, Jesus or their lifestyle, or Jesus or their partner. And the same thing, Debbie, is exactly true over the man who is sexually involved or living with a woman. Just because it's not gay sex doesn't mean it's not immoral sex. And so we have to understand that, and we have to understand the, the difficulty that we're telling people. You know, we tell single people all the time, you know, ask God for the gift of celibacy. Well, uh, that's not an easy thing to talk to somebody about who, who's lonely and wants to be with someone, but they're asked to control their lust. The same thing is true of those who are attracted uh, to the same gender. Thank you, Debbie. Here's a question from Dwayne that I was getting to. Uh, why don't churches incorporate foot washing into their service, services if Jesus said we should? Dwayne, before answering the question, let me tell you what uh, what our kids said. You know, uh, I've said before that every day on this program during the week, we have a bunch of kids come in here and pray for the program. They're praying for you. And um, a lot of the times if they get here a few minutes early, they like to look at the questions and try to answer them, and we encourage that, and it's amazing how often they know the answers to the questions. Well, today, we had six kids who were in here praying for the program, and just before we prayed for the program, they were going through the questions, and we came to this question, and one of our little girls said, she said, because feet stink, and I just laughed so hard. Um, That was a, a... perspective of a little girl. I love her so much. Um, But that's not the reason that we don't incorporate foot washing. Dwayne, the reason that we don't is because Jesus was setting an example. Now, here's how we determine what the sacraments of the church should be. And by sacraments, I mean things that we do uh, ritually or repeatedly. Um, um, We determine it by Jesus said to do it. The book of Acts, the apostles practiced it. And third is that the epistles confirm it or validate it. And only two sacraments fit uh, all the criteria. And that's, uh, of course, baptism and communion. So that's why we do those things. With the foot washing, we have one incident of it in in John chapter 13. And uh, Jesus was setting an example. It was really a teaching moment for the Lord with his disciples who would be apostles uh, because I, your Lord, have washed your feet. Now go and do likewise. In other words, serve 
people. And, and washing feet in the ancient world, remember they didn't have paved roads, washing feet was the job of the lowest slave in a household. So it was the worst job anybody could get. When, when somebody came to your house, they would leave their sandals outside or bring them just inside, and then there would be a servant there to wash your feet. Um, Jesus became that lowest slave. Beginning with the feet, the dirty, stinky feet of his betrayer. So, Dwayne, that's the reason. I hope that answers your question. Here is a question from Diane. She wants to know uh, why, or what's so was Paul married? Um, Diane, there's no biblical answer for it because we're not told. Um, those of us who've studied um, Jewish. Um, customs of the day. Uh, we understand that to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. It was a requirement. And Paul, we are confident, was a member of the Sanhedrin. And uh, that would have made meant that he would have been married. Now, people say, well, then what happened to his family? Uh, it's almost certain that uh, if, if, if he could have had children, he would have, they would have been trying because every Jewish family wanted children, boy children in particular. Um, so, so we assume there was a wife and children, but what would have happened is that upon his conversion, and remember, he was the chief persecutor of Christians, and upon his conversion, his family would have disowned him. His family would have absolutely disowned him because... Um, I mean, that was just uh, the worst thing that someone could do, to leave the faith. And that meant that Paul would have the gift of celibacy, and he would live the rest of his life serving the Lord, but not just serving the Lord, um, but, but doing so uh, as a single person. It's one of the reasons Paul would be able to say in his letter to the Corinthians that, that he thinks that if someone is single, they, they're in a better position to serve God because they can devote all of their time and all of their energy to pleasing God and not have to worry about pleasing a husband or a wife. Again, marriage is great. Marriage is to be honored by all. But Paul said, in my view, I think that the man who is single does better because he can be single-minded in purpose and focus. So, Diane, I hope that helps a little bit. Uh, here is an anonymous question. How can Christians be against abortion and for the death penalty? You know, anonymous, I get this question, oh, probably two, three times a year, and I answer it the same way every time. Is it even possible that you don't understand the difference between killing an innocent unborn child who has never done anything right or wrong and a murderer who has taken the life of another. Genesis says, if a man commits murder, then his life will be taken. So there's a consequence in this most terrible of crimes. The, the, the crime, the sin of murder, has to have the most terrible of consequences. So this isn't a pro-life issue. This is a pro-justice issue. And see, as Christians, what we've got to do is we've got to be on Jesus' side. We've got to agree with him. So the, 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 the fallacious arguments that you hear uh, in the news media uh, that, that are anti-capital punishment arguments, uh, they're silly. They're, they're emotional arguments rather than arguments based in reason or logic. God values human life to such a degree that there is a consequence for taking human life, and that consequence is you give your own life. Now, obviously, we have perverted it throughout the centuries. Um, some people commit murder and get away with it. Some people are innocent and they get uh, executed. And it's always been the way it has been. But the general rule is when somebody commits a murder, they're going to die. And that shows you the heart of God as he values human life. Now, the idea that murdering a child in the womb or partly out of the womb is somehow a contradiction to being in favor of a death penalty 
has no intelligence to it at all. Nothing but emotion. Um, there, there's just nothing. Um, I, I, I never understand somebody who asks this question. So anonymous, that's the best I can do. Uh, if you can't tell the difference between uh, an unborn innocent and a murderer, um, a willful murderer, then I, I don't know what else to say to you. So that's the answer. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question, another anonymous, an, another anonymous question. Um, Pastor Ron, when Christians say they are saved, what are they saved from? Well, anonymous, what they're saved from is from the penalty of their sins, which is, by the way, death. That's what they're saved from. They're saved from the penalty of sin, and the penalty of sin is death. That's more important than that. I mean, there's there's more to it than that. I shouldn't have said more important. There's more to it than that. Because we're also then saved from the control of sin in our lives. When we give our heart to Jesus, it means we don't have to sin anymore. Now, we will because nobody's perfect. But it means necessarily that we never have to give in to sin. That we have the ability to combat temptation. That we can say no to our flesh. Did I say earlier that tonight's Bible study in Second Samuel chapter 1 is going to focus on flesh and the damage it does and what our response needs to be? See, we're saved from the control of sin in our lives. There's a new sheriff in town. It's Jesus, and he's got control of our heart in the person of the Holy Spirit. So we're saved not only from the penalty of sin, but we're saved from the control of sin in our lives. In essence, Anonymous, we're saved from ourselves. You know, when Jesus came uh, to his own and his own rejected him, um, they wanted him to rescue them from um, Roman control. Uh, when the Messiah came, they immediately believed that he would establish his kingdom and Jews would be able to live this privileged life. Jesus said, uh, my paraphrase, you don't understand. I've come to save you from something far more insidious than Rome. And they would say, well, what is it? I've come to save you from you. I've come to save you from your sins. And every single person in this world, Anonymous, has the right and the opportunity to make that choice. Sometimes I wish God didn't give us the right to a choice. Sometimes, especially for the unbelieving people that I know and love, I wish God would force us. I mean, force us to believe. But he loves us too much to violate our free will. But he continues to make it difficult for us to reject him. And so if you want to be saved from your sin, from the penalty of sin, from the control of sin, if you want to be saved from eternity in hell, then Jesus is the answer. Paul, speaking more about sanctification than justification, in Romans chapter 7, he said, uh, what I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And in the very next verse, he supplied the only answer that's possible. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. He's the rescuer. So that's what we are saved from. One more common anonymous. What we're saved to is even better. I'm grateful, more grateful than I can imagine than that that I've been saved from me, from my sin. But I'm even more grateful for what I've been saved to. I've been a believer for 26 and a half years. Or no, it's more than that now. It'll be 27 years in February, so almost 27 years. And my life is richer than I ever dreamed it could possibly be. I have a relationship with another human being. She lives in my home. She'll be on this radio program tomorrow. And I never dreamed I could love a person like that. I never had that kind of love in this world before Jesus. So I've been rescued from that hopelessness into this wonderful relationship where my best friend and my wife 
serves with me day after day after day. I've been saved from a life of frustration trying to prove myself to people in this world, trying to make a lot of money. Successful at it too, at least back then. I don't have any of it left. But I've been saved too. A life that's so rich and full that I can't imagine my life being any other place right now. For the nearly 27 years I've been saved, I've been saved to a relationship where his arms are always around me. He's always with me. I understand what it means when he said he'll never leave me or forsake me because he's with me in good times and bad. Before I was saved, I had to figure out how to save myself, and I wasn't very good at it. Nobody is. So Anonymous, that's what we're saved from, but what we're saved to is far, far, far better than that. Well, we're inside a minute for the program, so we don't have time for another question, but let me remind you that tonight here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, you can watch it at calvarysa.com if you uh, are um, able to do so. Second uh, Samuel chapter 1, we're going to talk about how our ugly flesh needs to be killed and David is going to set the example for us. That's tonight at 7 o'clock. Tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. You've been listening to the words of Stand On For Life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And wherever you are and whatever you're doing, make sure that one of the things you're doing is that you're sharing Jesus with the people you really, really care about. Tell everybody that Jesus loves them. God bless you. We'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.